worship with us as we sing Here I Am to Worship. so grateful, God, to sing praises to your name and to worship you for who you are and for all that you have done. God, we're so grateful that you are perfect in righteousness and perfect in justice. And yet, God, you are also slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and full of mercy. 
So we give you praise and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church family. It is so good to be here with you and to worship our Lord and Savior. And as Seth just stated in prayer, he is worthy of our worship because of what? His son, his son he sent to to pay for our sins on the cross. And and that's why we come together. Amen. Amen. And if you are visiting today, I just want to give you a special welcome. We're so glad you chose to come and join us. And I get the joy of just opening up our bulletin and kind of looking at the activities we are doing together as a church family. So if you have it, go ahead and open it up. We're going to go right over to the announcements section. And there's really just four things I want to highlight. We've, we've kind of gone over a lot of these already, but um, we have a special service because we're going to get to celebrate the Lord's table. So I want to move quickly. But you'll notice uh, underneath the Titus 1 men's discipleship announcement, baptism. We have a baptism coming up. That'd be next week, February 13th. And man, that day is going to be a lot of fun because we're going to get to celebrate. And well, here the testimony of someone who has been changed by God's word and changed by the Holy Spirit. And I know this person. Uh, she's a close pers- a close family member of mine, and I'm very excited for this. But February 13th, you want to put that on the calendar. You don't want to miss it. And uh, invite your friends and family to join as well. That'll happen right at the end of the service, so you don't have to worry too much. Just stick around. But uh, as we keep going, underneath there, that same day is Super Bowl Sunday. And so we want to invite you guys after the baptism and after our worship service to return later that evening uh, from 4 to 9 p.m. We're going to be meeting here in this building, and we're going to get to watch the big football game right up here on the big screen. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I know a lot of you are going to bring all kinds of snacks and goodies, and we'll have tables all lined up in the back for you to, to bring them and, and to set them there for, for sharing with everyone. And so I encourage you, come join us. Come ready to have some fun. And we have the best halftime show ever because we get to hear again the testimony of how God changed somebody here in our church body. And so I want you to invite friends, family, coworkers, uh, your neighbors, everyone to come and have fun with us that, that day. And if we keep going down here, uh, something really important I want to announce as well is you'll see a, a, a class that we're going to be having here called Wisely Pursuing a Spouse. And I know some of you are thinking, well, I'm married. You know, I don't, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Well, This is not only for those of you who are single or in junior high or high school. This is for you parents, because you're going to be having talks with your kids, Lord willing, about uh, what does it look like to be pursuing a spouse? What are the characteristics that that your children are are to exhibit and what they are to look for in in a spouse? And grandparents, ah, yes, you're not out of it either. I encourage you, join as well. This is so vital. Uh, Thomas and I have had conversations about this, and Marriage is really the second biggest decision you or anyone can ever make in life. The first is to place their faith in Jesus Christ alone. But marriage, so vital. And we want you guys to come and join this class. This is coming up Wednesday, February 23rd from 6.30 to 9 p.m. And our youth group meets Wednesday nights, so they're just going to be joining that class. And uh, so... Really, this is an invitation for all of you. So I expect to see this this building just as full on Wednesday, okay? Uh, but 
One final thing I want to announce here is underneath there, you'll see college and career game night. Uh, we're having that coming up Friday, February 25th. And let's see, ooh, it's going to be at the week's home that are this time. And so I encourage you to sign up for that. Come ready to have some fun and, and eat good food. Uh, and I thought I'll touch one more thing. If you flip over past the notes, there's some information about our Bible reading plan, about youth group. And about small groups. And so if you've been coming a while and you want to you wanna dig deeper, you want to build better and stronger relationships, I encourage you to consider a growth group uh, that, that occurs during the week. But with that, Pastor Thomas, he's going to come now and he's going to prepare our hearts as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, why don't you open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We got to read earlier this week uh, as we've been uh, marching through First uh, and Second Samuel in our uh, Bible reading plan this month. And 1 Samuel 8 is a very significant chapter. I'll be reading from uh, the legacy uh standard Bible, so if it doesn't match exactly what is uh, in the text behind me, uh, forgive us for that, but follow along in your own copy of God's Word, beginning in verse 1, 1 Samuel 8. And it happened when Samuel was old uh, that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn uh, was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. Uh, And they were judging in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. But turned aside after greedy gain and took bribes and caused justice to turn aside. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was evil in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to Yahweh. And then Yahweh said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So now listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly testify to them and tell them of the custom of the king who will reign over them. And it follows it as Samuel laid out for them. If you want a human king, this is what life is going to be like. Uh, And if I could summarize it briefly, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You're not going to be happy and satisfied having a human king in authority over you. That's what Samuel lays out for them. And uh, this is a significant chapter because uh, Israel as a nation uh, was founded uh, as a a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were founded as, uh, as a theocracy. Uh, a government that had uh, God as its head. Uh, and, and what we see here uh, is a, a request, yes, uh, but it's also a revolution. Uh, they, they are coming and saying, we want to transition from being a theocracy 
to being a monarchy. And as we, as we read this, it's, it's easy to see that this is, that this is rebellion. Right? They want to, uh, they are rejecting who? Not Samuel, who had been a judge over them for years and years and years. God says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. Who are they rejecting? God himself. And, uh, it's, it's amazing to see clear rebellion in scripture, but when we, when we strive to examine our own hearts and lives, things kind of get a little fuzzy, right? Uh, it's not as clear. Suddenly our glasses fog up, and uh, I, don't, I don't know what's happening here in my life. But in our moments of sin, we are all like Israel in this passage. That we uh, have a desire to rule ourselves. We want to throw off God's authority over our lives. Uh, and we want to set ourselves up on the throne. And sin is on display here, but in a way, the gospel is as well. While we naturally desire to overthrow God and rule ourselves, uh, the message of the gospel that we see over and over again throughout uh, the entire Bible, uh, the the gospel is the exact inverse of this. In the gospel, we are called to overthrow uh, our self-rule. And we are all operating under a monarchy. Uh, We have put ourselves on the throne. And the gospel says that we need to dethrone ourselves. uh, And we need to to transition from being under a monarchy of self to a theocracy. And we are called to submit our lives uh, to God by submitting to the king that he has established to rule and reign over us. Namely, his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the people of Israel say, give us a human king to rule over us like the nations. Uh, and in the gospel, we, we should be crying out to God, saying, uh, help uh, make us more and more like the king whom you have established. Transform our hearts and minds to be like him. We're called to renounce any and all claims uh, to ruling over ourselves. We're called to submit our lives to Christ, to receive him in faith and then to rest upon who he is and all that he has done for us uh, in his life, death, and resurrection. And the regular participation in the Lord's Supper is a reminder of this. It's a reminder of Christ's body broken on our behalf. It's a reminder of Christ's blood shed on our behalf. But it is also a reminder that a revolution has taken place in our lives. Uh, That we no longer belong to ourselves, but who is ruling and reigning? Christ, uh, the one who lived and died for us. Uh, And this is what we are called to remember. That we have been united with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. uh, And that we are now raised to newness of life and and we live uh, in submission to him. That we uh, submit ourselves uh, as uh, his servants and slaves. And as such, uh, the Lord's Supper uh, is intended to be only for those who are genuine believers, only for those who have uh, made that identification with Christ. Uh, And uh, so what we're going to, as we're going to partake of uh, things today, we're going to ask or invite all who have been uh, baptized as a demonstration of their faith. You you please rejoice with us. Please participate with us. Uh, But if you uh, have yet to be baptized, if you've yet to place your faith and trust in Christ, uh, we would love to talk with you about baptism. Uh, to tell you uh, what it is, to tell you uh, who Jesus is and what he has done for you. 
But we would also ask if you've not been uh, baptized that you would uh, refrain from partaking of the elements this morning. Uh, and uh, as uh, we're going to, to pick up the bread and the cup uh, in a, a couple of moments, uh, I would uh, ask you to, to pick them up and then return so that we can partake of them uh, all together. Uh, and as uh, you wait, uh, either in line to, to pick up the bread and the cup or uh, in uh, the quietness of your own uh, seat here in, in a few minutes, that uh, you would take this time uh, to examine your life, uh, to search out uh, any and every area uh, where you uh, are seeking to rule yourself, uh, where you are unwilling to submit uh, a, a portion of your life to Christ. Uh, maybe you're unwilling to submit any portion of your life to Christ. Uh, and, and this is uh, the appropriate time uh, to confess uh, and to forsake those sins that we have turned to, the idols that we are worshiping, uh, rather than turning to and worshiping Christ. Uh, this is the time to seek God's forgiveness, to confess and, and ask. Uh, and knowing that if we confess and ask uh, our sins to be forgiven, what will he promise to do in First John 1, 9? What does he... T- yeah, to cleanse us and to forgiveness, forgive us of every sin. This is the time to reorient our hearts and minds uh, and lives to be in submission to Christ, our King, uh, as we follow Him. And so Liz is going to play uh, on the piano, and we're going to invite you all to, to stand and, and pick up the elements uh, and then return to your seats, uh, and we will uh, partake of them together in a few moments. But you can begin to, to pick up those elements.
the church is a bound together people. And we are bound together because we have the same king that we ought to partake of this morning. It's something that was commanded and ordained by Christ as a reminder, as a memorial, as a celebration of who he is and all that he has done on our behalf. When we partake of this bread together, it is a reminder of Christ's body. His body that was crucified on our behalf. On the night of his arrest and betrayal. During his last meal with his disciples. Mark's gospel records this. And he took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. Let's partake of the bread and body of Christ together now. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This cup is intended to represent the blood of Christ that was poured out, that was shed in payment for our sins. The penalty that you and I owed to God was paid for by Christ. And now the wrath of God has been satisfied because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Let us drink in remembrance of him. And now may we pray together. Lord Jesus, we we thank you. We worship you. We praise you. We acknowledge that you are the one true king whom God the Father has placed over all creation. We acknowledge that there are moments, times, and even seasons in our lives when we do not live as we should, when we seek to to throw off your lordship, when we strive to live our own way, No matter the, the time or the duration, Lord, this is sinful. We exalt ourselves over you. We would ask for your forgiveness for our sins, for our re- rebellion, for those little areas, those little sins in our life that we are so prone to, that we are slow to confess that we are slow to forsake. We would ask that you would shine the light of your word and the power of your spirit into our hearts and minds and lives so that we would see any and all areas where we are ruling over ourselves and not according to your lordship. 
we would ask that you would help us to to put you back on the throne in our hearts and lives, that we would submit every area of our life to you. And Lord, may this be a continual exercise, not a, a one-time endeavor. But Lord, continue to, to search out our hearts. Continue to teach us and show us uh, how we are to uh, each and every day deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow you. Uh, as our Lord, as our Savior, we lift up these prayers and these petitions with thanksgiving and adoration and worship. And we ask that you would continue to be with us and guide us, uh, even as we, we still worship you this morning. Amen. Will you please stand with us and let's sing to the Lord, I will glory in my Redeemer.
children kindergarten through third grade you can head to the back of the room follow your teachers and let's continue to worship the lord singing holy holy holy
you and we're so grateful God that we can sing to you that you are holy and Lord though we are not holy in ourselves we praise you that the King Jesus is and that he came to make us holy that we are justified in him and that we are now being sanctified and that you have promised you will complete what you have begun in us And one day, God, we will be glorified and we'll see you face to face. We look forward to that day and we we praise you and we pray that you would empower us to live holy lives and continue to forsake sin and to look to Christ and to live by faith. We love you. We pray that you would bless our time together and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd open your Bibles with me to John chapter uh, 11, continue our study there. And back in, in 1979, uh, Domino's uh, Pizza uh, introduced a guarantee that you might be familiar with. 30 minutes or it's free. Uh, and uh, such a promise caught the attention of customers uh, and the, the company uh, grew rapidly uh, in the 1980s, becoming the, the second largest uh, pizza company uh, in the world. Uh, but, but this guarantee that they made created several problems. It, it encouraged uh, customers to begin to, to cheat the system uh, and to make things difficult uh, for the drivers. So uh, customers were notorious for turning off their porch light uh, once they had ordered the pizza so that the driver would have a difficult time uh, finding uh, the, the street address uh, for the, their house. But uh, uh, it also created some other problems uh, because the, the guarantee uh, led delivery drivers uh, to speed and drive uh, recklessly uh, as they attempted to beat the clock. Uh, and ultimately, uh, the company made this promise, it made this guarantee, uh, and it struggled uh, to, to deliver on the promise that it made. Uh, and it, it continually uh, failed uh, to deliver on this guarantee, and they had to give away a lot of pizza. Uh, and so in 1986, they actually changed uh, the, the guarantee, walking it back a little bit, uh, to make it uh, 30 minutes or $3 off. Uh, and uh, uh, the guarantee uh, officially ended uh, in 1993 following uh, a lawsuit uh, from a woman who had been hit by a driver uh, who uh, ran through a red light. And whenever a, a promise or a guarantee is made, uh, it's very easy uh, to break a promise, right? Uh, to quote Mary Poppins, uh, some promises are like pie crust promises, easily made, easily broken. Uh, and uh, many of us have made promises uh, that we ourselves have broken. Uh, and I would venture to say that most of us uh, have been on the other side of a broken promise. Uh, and we we see and we know uh, the heartache that comes when somebody makes uh, a promise to you and then does not deliver. And so because promises are, I think, broken so regularly in this life, sometimes we are slow 
to trust and believe all of the promises that are made to us in Scripture. And I think intellectually we know that we're supposed to, to trust and believe everything uh, that is written for us, all of the, the promises, all the guarantees that are made in the pages of the Bible. Now, but, but the big question remains of how do we really know that Jesus will deliver on all of the promises that he makes? How do we know that he can do what he says he can do? Now, throughout his earthly ministry, even as we've been studying through the Gospel of John, we have seen Jesus make many promises. Now, and his biggest promises have to do with uh, salvation in this life and uh, life in eternity. If you think back uh, with me to passages that we've already studied in John's Gospel, but uh, John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes... In him will have eternal life. John 4, 14, as Jesus was speaking with uh, the Samaritan woman uh, at the well outside of Sychar, says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Again, in chapter 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Chapter 7, verses verses 37 and 38. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Those are big promises, right? How do we know that Jesus can deliver? How do we know that he will keep his word? That's what we're going to see this morning. Ultimately, what we have seen uh, throughout this entire gospel is that the works of Jesus prove his words, uh, even as his words explain his works. Uh, there's going to be a, uh, a relationship between uh, what Jesus says and what he does here in this gospel. He makes a claim and then he, he demonstrates with a miraculous uh, work. Uh, when he says, I am the, the bread of life, uh, and everyone who, who comes and, and eats and partakes of me, I can give them eternal life. What had he just done? He just fed 5,000. Uh, There's always a link between uh, the claims of Christ and the miracles that he performs in John's gospel. And what we're going to to see and study this morning is the seventh miracle, uh, the number of perfection and completion, uh, the the seventh miracle that Jesus performs in this gospel. Uh, The the first miracle that he performed back in John chapter 2, he turned water into wine. John chapter 4, he, he healed the nobleman's son. John chapter 5, he healed a man who had been an invalid for years and years. Chapter 6, he fed 5,000, then he walked on water. John chapter 9, he healed a man who had been born blind. It never happened in the, all of human history. People were beginning to say, something is unique about Jesus. And then John chapter 11 the longest of the, the narratives of the, the miracles in John's gospel. 
This is going to be the, the capstone of Jesus' miracles. Now, Jesus did a lot more than, than seven miracles, but John records these seven uh, with special emphasis uh, because they're going to reveal who Jesus is and what he came to do. And this is the capstone here, what we're going to study this morning. If you look with me, beginning in verse 38, John chapter 11. It says, So Jesus again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time he smells, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And so they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing around, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pause and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that you have inspired and recorded for us here in John's gospel. We pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding that you would, by the power of your spirit, illumine our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. That you would use this time to reveal Christ to us. That we would believe that we would see His glory here and that You would use uh, Your words here to impact, to influence, to transform our hearts and minds to draw us near to You, to Your glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we have been studying through this chapter, the story has been building. the beginning of the chapter, we received uh, the, the tragic news of Lazarus's sickness. The messengers came uh, to Jesus out in the wilderness, and he was out in the wilderness because it was safe in the wilderness. Uh, Because the religious leaders uh, were searching uh, and wanting to arrest Jesus, ultimately to to kill him. So Jesus was out in the wilderness. He receives news of Lazarus' sickness. Uh, We have walked through all of that. He finally arrives in Bethany. Verse 17, uh, we saw him interact with uh, Martha, the sister of Lazarus. We saw him interact with Mary, uh, the other sister. We've seen this parade of mourners. uh, And as we come to this passage that we're reading uh, today and studying today, uh, Jesus, Martha, and Mary are at the head of this long parade of mourners who are coming to the tomb of Lazarus. And they are weeping and wailing. This is not a quiet, solemn procession. There is, this is very loud, crying out. And we finally arrive at the tomb, 
And Jesus has already proclaimed in this chapter that he himself is the resurrection and the life. All right now that's a that's a big boast. Right? That's a, that's something that's it's very easy to say, but it's very difficult to back that up. What we're going to, to see here now, so to speak, that Jesus is going to, to put his miracles where his mouth is. Now he's going to, to demonstrate, he's going to prove his word. As we study these verses, we're going to see that, that Jesus uh, proves his words here. But how, how do we know that Jesus is able to deliver on his promises of salvation and eternal life? No, we're going to rest assured of that by the end of our study this morning because of uh, the two big areas where Christ proves his word in this passage. Two areas where Christ has made promises and now he's going to demonstrate that he can b- deliver on them. And the first of these big areas that Christ is going to, to show that he can deliver is found in verses 38 to 42. Namely that Christ is fulfilling God's plan of redemption. Now, and there are, there are three parts of God's plan that are going to be emphasized here. Now, and the first part of God's plan that Jesus is going to, to fulfill so he is able to uh, defeat death. That's a part of God's plan. We see this in verses 38 and 39. Said, so Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And he said, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time he smells, for he's been dead four days. What we see in verse 38 is Jesus... Uh, comes uh, with the same emotion that we saw back in verse 33. We talked about this last Sunday, verse 33 there, it says that he was deeply moved. Uh, but, but the word there doesn't just communicate that Jesus was, was deeply moved with some random emotion. Uh, the idea is that Jesus was deeply moved with anger. Uh, this is a, a word uh, that communicates a deep and profound anger. And that's what we see here. As Jesus comes to the tomb, uh, he is angry. Again, we looked at this last week. He is angry uh, at sin. He is angry at death. Death was not a part of God's original creation. It is something that has entered into this world as a result of sin. Uh, And as such, it is an intruder uh, into this realm. It's the enemy of humanity. It is something to be defeated. Uh, And as Jesus approaches this tomb... This memorial of death, he is, he's angry. Uh, he, he is, uh, coming as a man who's willing to, uh, to defend his land and his family against any and all intruders, right? Men, how do you feel, uh, if an intruder were to come into your home and into your property? What would you be ready to do? Ready to defend? What feeling would, would come up into your hearts in that moment? Maybe a little bit of anger. Maybe a little bit of fear. But Jesus doesn't have any fear here. Only anger. He's come to deal with this intruder who has taken the life of his friend. Uh, 19th century theologian B.B. Warfield wrote this uh, about the, the scene before us. He says, inextinguishable fury seizes upon him. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. 
the raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance and an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us is to uncover for us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites in our behalf, and he has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression, and under the impulse of these feelings, he has wrought out out our redemption. That's what we looked at and studied last week. How do we know Jesus has uh, a care and a concern about us? Because of his anger towards sin and death. You, you care deeply about the things that you love most. And we see Jesus coming and he's deeply moved with anger. Now, and he speaks to the crowd of mourners and he tells them, move this stone. Get, get the stone away from the entrance to this cave. Now, and, and Martha objects. She says, there's going to be an odor. Uh, and literally in the Greek, he is a, she says, he's a fourth day man. Right? He's been dead in there for four days. Now, and uh, this doesn't, Deter, or lead Jesus to, to, to change his mind. He doesn't say, oh, if there's going to be a smell, we'll cover it back up. Jesus has come there with a purpose. He has determined to defeat the enemy, and the enemy is death. The intruder who has taken his friend. You know, what what a, a balm to our hearts that, that Christ has this type uh, of animosity towards sin and death. Christ is no friend of death. He hates death even more than we do. And this is a part of Jesus fulfilling God's plan. The overarching plan of God, uh, the, the goal of Christ. He has come uh, to save, yes, but also to defeat death. But then also what we're going to see, he's coming to reveal his glory. And this is seen in, in verse 40. And as, as Jesus responds to Martha, he said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So unfazed by the odor, Jesus says, hey, remove the stone. And when the stone is removed, he reminds Martha of something that he's already spoken about in this chapter. Now, back in verse 11 of this chapter, uh, Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, uh, he says uh, that uh, when he heard of the sickness of Lazarus, he said, this sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And then although it's not recorded for us in their conversation, uh, it, is, it is safe to assume that, uh, that Jesus said something similar to Martha in their interaction later on in the chapter. That when Christ performs this miracle, uh, He is going to be showing His glory. He's going to be revealing who He is and what He is capable of. It's going to, to show forth. But what's amazing is not everybody is going to see this. Now, there's going to be people there who are going to be eyewitnesses to this miracle. But he, there's a condition upon the seeing of this glory here. If you look at the text, what is, what's the qualification? It says, if you believe. And, and here's an important principle. That believing leads to seeing. And if you believe, then you will see the glory of God manifested in the works of Christ. But if you don't believe, you won't see. 
So believing always leads to seeing, but seeing does not always lead to believing. And this is, again, a recurring theme in John's gospel. And it goes back really to John chapter 9. Again, the purpose of that miracle uh, in uh, Jesus healing the man who was born blind. Uh, and uh, something happens that has never happened in the history of the world. A man who was born blind is healed. Jesus gives him, in essence, new eyes. Uh, and the Pharisees are still questioning and unsure about who Jesus is. But the blind man is able to see clearly. And the, the spiritual blindness of those who do not believe in Jesus was the, the point of the, the miracle. And it was the point of the, John chapter 9 as a whole. And there are going to be people who are eyewitnesses to this miracle, and, then, and yet they will not believe in Jesus. If you look at verses 45 and 46, the, the response to uh, Lazarus being resurrected from the dead. So therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary, to Mary saw uh, what he had done and believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So there are many who believe, but there are also some who don't. There are some who immediately go to the Pharisees, hey, that guy that you're looking for, the guy that you want to kill, he's over in Bethany, and he's raising the dead. But don't worry about that, but you, you want to kill him. That's what we see. And, and again, it, it's amazing, right? Well, and it sparks wonder. How can you witness this entire scene and still not believe? Again, Believing leads to seeing, but seeing does not lead to believing. Leon Morris puts it this way, The crowd would see the miracle, but only believers would perceive the glory that was revealed. And without faith, you will not see Christ's glory. Even if you read the Bible, if you read it without faith, uh, you're not going to see and behold Christ as he truly is. But if you believe, then you will see the glory of Christ revealed in his works and in his words. Christ has come to fulfill the plan of God, to defeat death, and he has come to reveal his glory. Everything that Jesus does here on the earth is with that intention. But there's another focus here, a third one. Part of God's plan uh, is seen in verses 41 and 42, namely to instill faith. So they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing around, I said this, so that they may believe that you sent me. Now the stone covering the tomb is removed, and I would imagine at this point that there is probably complete silence among the crowd. Right, all of the all of the weeping, all of the wailing. The flute players have probably stopped, and, and uh, this entire parade that was following up behind Jesus and Martha and Mary is now stopped, and they are wondering what is about to happen. Because why would you remove the stone covering this tomb? And I think there would have been a a hushed. And yet electric anticipation as everybody is wanting to see what's going to happen. And in that moment of hush, what does Jesus do? He pauses. He lifts his eyes heavenward. I think it's safe to assume that he also would have lifted his hands. That was the the common position of, of Jewish 
men to pray. He lifts his eyes and he lifts his hands and he speaks to God the Father. And again, I I think there's a, a portion of the prayer that's not recorded for us here because we don't see Jesus actually asking the Father for Lazarus. But what we do have is uh, Jesus uh, speaking to the Father and thanking Him for hearing His prayer. And the implication is that God doesn't just hear Jesus' prayers, but He also answers them. He always gives to Jesus exactly what He has asked for. And, and this point here harkens back to what we have seen throughout John's Gospel, that Jesus has said He has... Uh, come into this world sent by the father and he he only does what the father has sent him to do and even if you go back uh, just earlier into this chapter in verse 22 when martha came to jesus she says but even now i know that whatever you ask from god god will give you jesus is in essence affirming that yes but jesus also informs us about why he is standing up and praying aloud in this way Right, why would he do that? When, when the whole crowd is, is hushed, and this is the moment, before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he wants to set the record straight. And he's praying to the Father, but yes, it's also for the benefit of those standing around him. And he wants everybody around him, everyone who's going to witness this miracle, he wants them to see and understand that this is not Jesus being a, a lone magician somehow raising the dead. This is the Son of God and God the Father working in tandem. There is a connection here that Jesus is is seeking to draw. Jesus wants them to hear and understand what is about to take place in a moment. And Jesus wants them to hear his prayer. And Jesus wants them to see Lazarus raised. And he wants them to believe. He he wants them to believe that he is the one sent by the Father. If you look back at verse 27, we have Martha's profession of faith. He had asked, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. Jesus now prays so that everybody who is going to witness this miracle is going to, to echo that same profession of faith wants everyone else to see and to behold who he is and what he is about to do. The purpose of Jesus' prayer, the purpose of this miracle, is the purpose of this entire gospel. It was written down so that we would believe in him, that we would see his glory and receive eternal life in his name. And this is a part of God's plan of redemption. God has sent Jesus into the world to defeat death, to reveal his glory, and to instill faith in people. That they would look to God the Father and have eternal life through his Son. And it is amazing to think that right now in Jesus' ministry, that that everything is going perfect according to God's plan. If we were there and among the disciples, we may kind of scratch our heads and say, Really? Everything is going perfect according to your plan? Because right now, uh, the disciples were, were afraid. You know, they, they were fearing for their lives and their livelihood. Right? Do you remember uh, the, the words of Thomas back in verse 16? Uh, when, when Jesus said, hey, I'm going to be going down there. The disciples initially said, are you sure? Where they were trying to arrest you, is that a good idea? 
And Jesus says, oh, yeah, I'm going. Going to raise Lazarus. And Thomas says, well, let's go with him that we may die with him. Thomas thinks he's marching to his death and going down. And it may have been that Thomas uh, was hoping for like a, a quiet entrance into the town of Bethany. Like, hey, can we go and pay our respects to, to Martha and Mary? And can we just ha- have this be kind of a, a covert operation just outside of Jerusalem? And that hope evaporates, right? All of these Jews have come to comfort uh, the family and they are all there and they all have seen Jesus, have seen his disciples and they are all there with them at the tomb. There is no hiding now. The disciples would have felt the the heat of persecution. They would have felt the the grief of losing Lazarus, right? If, If Jesus was a friend of Lazarus, you know the disciples were always with Jesus and that they probably were close to Lazarus as well. So in what sense would the disciples say that everything's going according to, to plan? By human standards, it would have felt that everything is falling apart. But according to God's perfect plan, everything is right on schedule and just as it should be. Because again, God's plan is not merely to give us an easy ride through life. His plan might lead to happiness, success, and health. Or it might lead in this life to suffering, failure, and poverty. God is not as concerned about those things as we are. We value those things in our sinful hearts, right? We want to enthrone pleasure and comfort and ease in this life. But God's unfolding plan focuses upon his victory over death, the revelation of his glory and the salvation of his people. That is what God is most concerned with, and that is what Christ has come to do. That is what Christ has been proclaiming. He's the one who's been sent by the Father to come and save the world. And Jesus is revealing that. He's proving his word here. And we need to remember God's plan. We need to remember that it's not all about us. And that's a symptom of of elevating ourselves uh, into that position of being the monarch. Right? The, The whole country is about who in a monarchy? About the king. Right? But, but again, we, we are to live under a theocracy, under the lordship of Christ. And Christ came to defeat death, to bring glory to the Father, and to pull us back from the gates of hell, to save and rescue us. And when the world is crumbling, God is still acting to fulfill his plan. And the big picture of the Bible is on display here. As I've said over and over again, the, the big picture of redemption in Christ for the glory of God. God is working to save a people for himself and to bring glory to his name through his son. Jesus never loses sight of that, even if we do. He's always acting to fulfill God's plan of redemption. He's always acting to bring glory. And he longs for each and every one of us to look to him in faith. Think about this. Uh, Jesus prays this prayer and he prays out loud specifically so that everyone who hears would do what? would look to him in faith. And then, what does the Apostle John make sure to record for us as he's writing down this gospel? The very prayer of Jesus. So that everyone who would read these words would do the exact same thing. What are we to do? To look to Jesus in faith. Trusting in him. Believing and then seeing the glory of Jesus that is about to be displayed here. And Jesus is is proving his words as he fulfills God's plan of redemption. 
to defeat death. He's going to reveal God's glory, and he's going to instill faith so that people would come to him. And there's going to be another area in which Christ is going to, to demonstrate that he can back up his words. And this is in verses 43 and, and 44. And Christ is, is demonstrating his power to save. If you look at those verses with me again. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. That's what we see here. Jesus' prayer turns into something else, something very different. His eyes move from looking upwards to heaven to probably looking to the open tomb. And the text says that he cried out with a great voice. And I wonder, my own imagination, I wonder what that voice would have sounded like on that day. Wouldn't that be amazing just to, to get an audio clip of that? Like what did that voice sound like? One commentator said, this is, this is a voice of raw authority. Jesus is going to speak three words. All right, the, most English translations uh, have it as, Lazarus, come forth. Uh, but in the Greek, there's actually no verb. He speaks three words, a noun, Lazarus, and then he speaks two adverbs, speaking uh, a descriptive word, uh, talking about how an action is to take place. But you might... Uh, Put it literally, he says, Lazarus, here, outside. And again, imagine this scene with me, right? A silent crowd listening to Jesus praying. And then suddenly, Jesus cries out for Lazarus. And everybody's eye would have been locked immediately on that open tomb. What is about to happen? Everyone waiting with bated breath. And we don't know how long it took Lazarus to come to the opening in the tomb. He wasn't able to just freely walk, uh, as we see in verse 44. But verse 44 tells us that he came out. And at this point, it is worth noting a couple things. Verse 44 says, the man who died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. A couple of observations of this. There's a, a significant span in this chapter where Lazarus's name is not mentioned. It's mentioned here in verse 43, but if you, if you were to read carefully, the last time his actual name is mentioned is verse 14. And what is said about Lazarus in verse 14? Jesus tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So there, it goes from Lazarus, the emphasis on Lazarus being dead, uh, and then until verse 43 and then even afterwards, he, he is identified as the one who's died, the one who has uh, uh, deceased. Uh, he has come to an end. Uh, in verse uh, 21 and 32, Martha and Mary refer to him as my brother. Verse 37, he's referred to as this man. Verse 39 is a different statement from verse 44. The idea is, again, the one who has come to an end. He's no longer uh, living. The ESV says the dead man. And then in verse 44, the man who had died came forth. So the emphasis here is upon what? He was dead. 
He was dead. Again, he, he's a fourth day man. There's a smell associated with him at this point. But, past tense, the man who had died, Jesus brought him back from the dead when he called him. All he had to do was speak, and the dead came to life. And Augustine once remarked that if Jesus had not specified the name of Lazarus, that all of the dead would have been raised and they would have come forth. But again, if you can, if you can imagine with me, if we're there in the crowd at this point in time, what a sight this would have been to see Lazarus appear at the entrance to the tomb, right? We, we would have been waiting there, holding our breath with, with, and then we would see him with absolute wonder. But also at the same time, I think this would have been a little comedic because what's the description in verse 44? He comes and he's bound. Foot and hand. Uh, and the idea of w- when uh, it was customary for, for when you had a, a corpse at this time, uh, that you would take a really large sheet, uh, a sheet, uh, a linen cloth that was so big that you could kind of roll the body up in it, uh, and it was long enough that you could uh, wrap the person up and then double it over uh, and uh, cinch it back up at their feet. So this enormous linen cloth, uh, roll them up, fold it over, and then you would tie the feet and then you would tie the arms like this, uh, and then you would put another face cloth o- over the, the face uh, and uh, cover it up completely. So when Jesus says, Lazarus, here, outside, a, a mummy appears uh, at uh, the, the entrance of the tomb. And I think everyone's just kind of in this uh, shocked uh, paralysis what, what am I seeing? What just happened? And I think nobody even moved because Jesus has to like to give them instructions of, hey, guys, go untie him. Let him go free. And, and the scene, it ends abruptly. Right? And, and I think it, that, that's intentional because we have so many questions. When it just ends like that, We're like, but then what happened? Right? Uh, We have questions for Lazarus. What was it like? What did you see? What did you do? You were dead for four days. Did it hurt? What was it like? Also, just my, my own personal curiosity. How many times did you bump your head on the way out or stub your toe? We also have questions for the crowd, right? How, how bad was the smell when you unwrapped him? When did you get over your shock? Like, when were you able to speak again after this? And if your grief was so great, what was that celebration like when, when Lazarus was brought back to you? The scene ends so abruptly. Just leaving us in a state of shock similar to what the eyewitnesses would have felt. It ends abruptly and then so many questions follow. What are we supposed to do with this? What are we to see here? How are we to respond? 
I think first and foremost, we have to keep in mind that this is, this is about a literal resurrection. It's about Lazarus, one whom Jesus loved, being raised from the dead. And as such, it is a very profound demonstration that Christ is God. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, The greatness of this miracle cannot possibly be exaggerated. The mind of man can scarcely take in the vastness of the work that was done. Here in open day, and before many hostile witnesses, a man four days dead was restored to life in a moment. And here was public proof that our Lord had absolute power over the material world. A corpse already corrupt was made alive. Here was public proof that our Lord had absolute power over the world of spirits. A soul that had left its earthly tenement was called back from paradise and joined once more into its owner's body. Well may the church of Christ maintain that he who could work such things uh, works uh, was over all God blessed forever. Quote of Romans 9 verse 5. So first and foremost, we must keep in mind this is a demonstration of Christ's deity. Secondly, this is also a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, There are many overlapping points between uh, the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus, but each one of those connecting points is also a contrast uh, to show the superiority of Christ's own resurrection. Both uh, of them died. Lazarus died as a result of illness, but Jesus gave up his own life. No one took it from him. Both were sealed in a tomb with a stone over the entrance. Lazarus, uh, someone else needed to come and move the stone away so that he could come out. Uh, But the the stone in front of Jesus' tomb was supernaturally uh, moved away uh, by an earthquake. You see that in Matthew chapter 28 verse 2. Both were bound in linen burial clothes when they were uh, entombed. But Lazarus needed others to unbind him when he emerged from the tomb. Uh, But the clothes of Jesus uh, were still lying there uh, as a demonstration of his resurrection. Both rose from the dead. Lazarus with a new lease on physical life and Jesus uh, the possessor of a transformed body. There's points of contrast here, but in all of these points of contrast, Jesus is superior. Thirdly, this is about the power of Jesus to conquer death and to give life. Jesus has made all of these promises that he is able to give eternal life, that he is able to to raise the dead on the last day, that he is able to save us. Again, really big claims. Jesus came to the aid of a friend who died and he raises him up again in this life. And Jesus is able to do the same for all of us who are spiritually dead in this life. And that is our default position. We come into this world uh, spiritually dead. We only have spiritual life if Jesus imparts it to us. And if we look to him in faith, receiving and resting on him, who he is and what he has done, then we have eternal life. And if we have received Jesus in faith and are now resting in him and in his sacrificial death, then we are like Lazarus. We were spiritually dead, but we have been raised by Christ to newness of life. And we have been called to lead a new life here on this earth. 
If you're here this morning and you haven't looked to Christ in faith, if you haven't uh, trusted in him and him alone, we would encourage you to look to him in faith. Receive and rest on him. There's no better time than now and no better day than today to do that. Look to him and trust in him. You too can know Jesus. You too can be raised to newness of life. Help and hope are offered in Christ. If you are here this morning and you have already done that, then we can rejoice and rest assured that everything that Jesus said that he is able to do, he indeed is able to do. Amen? And we are able to rest and trust in him. And lastly, this passage gives us hope, not only of the resurrection to newness of life in this earthly life, but it also assures us of Christ's power to raise us from the dead on the last day, to give us a new and glorified body, to be with him for eternity in heaven. And we see Jesus proving his words here as he fulfills God's plan for redemption and as he demonstrates his own power over life and death. We've beheld this miracle, and now we have a choice to make in our response. Will we live a life of faith, trusting in all of the promises of God? Or, if we are not actively choosing to live by faith, we are passively choosing to live by fear. We're passively choosing to to go our own way, to live by our own senses, by our own wisdom, by our own knowledge. Again, Christ calls us to renounce all of that. In the gospel, we are acknowledging his kingship, his lordship over us. And we are committing ourselves to live by faith. The Puritan Matthew Mead says it this way. His believers have comfort to live upon that the world knows nothing about. We have the comfort of God's promises. And what do you think is best, to live upon earthly pleasures or upon the promises of God? The earthly are yes and no, but the promises are yes and amen. The earthly are deceitful, but the promises are sure and faithful. The earthly feed, but sense, but the promises fill the soul. He that lives upon the promises lives by faith. And the life of faith is the only safe and true life in this world. What are we being called to as we look at Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? We are called to faith. uh, To a sincere uh, conviction that everything that Christ has promised, he is able to deliver upon. And we are called to now rest in the promises of Christ, being assured of their fulfillment Because we have seen Christ fulfilling God's plan. And here today we have seen Christ demonstrating his power. May we entrust ourselves to him. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we we thank you that you hear the prayers of your son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are now seated at the right hand of God the Father and that you are praying and interceding for us. We are so thankful that we are called and and counted among your friends, those whom you love and care for. And all those who who look to you in faith, Lord, we, we can rest assured that you will give us eternal life in the here and now. 
that you will be the one to set us free from slavery to sin, that you will be the one to satisfy our souls, and that you will be the one who gives us life for all of eternity. Father, thank you for this this glimpse of what that will look like, this glimpse, this assurance that Christ is able to deliver on all of his promises. Help us to rest truly and sincerely upon those. Help us to rest truly and sincerely and to live a life of faith, not in ourselves, but in your Son and in your Word. Pray that you would guide us and direct us, grow our faith that we might glorify you in proclaiming Christ to the world around us and proclaiming him regularly to ourselves as we rest in his promises. In his name, amen. Would you please stand with us and let's close our time singing, O Church, Arise. Church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captain. For now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shields of faith and belts of truth, we'll stand again. To rage against the captors and with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure, and Christ will Son of God is stricken, and sees foes like crushed beneath his feet, for the conqueror has risen, and as a stone is rolled away, and Christ emerges from the grave,
First John 3 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Oh, in the grace of God, you are dismissed. <laughs>